Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It's pretty offensive to tell people that without Jesus, they won't be saved. Yeah. And this, it's the exclusivity of Christ is offensive to people. The question we should ask before we ask about that is if it's true or not. Well, I'm back with Mike Winger this week, and many of you have already watched our previous episode where we are tackling some propositions put forth by a progressive Christian Facebook page, a manifesto of sorts that make all kinds of claims about the Bible and about theology and about God. And we're going to get back in. We, we got about 13 of them done last time. We're going to get the rest of them done today. But I just want to let you know that if you're hearing these podcasts and you're like, I want to know more about progressive Christianity. What are they teaching? How are they coming to some of these conclusions? I just want to encourage you to get my new book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. It tells my story of walking through a dark time of doubt that came about as a result of being in a, a small class at a church that eventually would go on to become a progressive Christian church. And so that's why I'm so passionate to talk about these issues. But I'm going to go ahead and bring Mike back on for this week's episode. We are going to tackle the rest of this list. Mike, if you're up for it, we're going to try to get the rest of these done. We got 14 through 23. Do you think we can do it? I think so. Okay. I think we can handle All it. All right. We'll plow through. So just for context, this is a post that someone sent to me, and they, they said there are so many just just truth claims that they're making. And she said, I would love it if somebody could help us just untie some of these knots and unpack some of these ideas. And so we did that in last uh, our last episode. So we're gonna dive right in with number 14. And this is the claim that this progressive Christian platform is making. And they're saying, Jesus loves you, this I know, for he came to show us so. What's behind that? What's going on there, Mike? This has become a controversial phrase um, recently, but I would just agree with it. I mean, I would say in and of itself, the words themselves, I would totally agree with yeah. Jesus does love me. And I know it because he, he shows me like this is what the Bible tells me about Jesus, right? That God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Yeah. So yeah, the, the cross is the demonstration of God's love. But there's a problem here, Yeah. right? What we're doing is we're taking a true true words, but when you look at the context of them, you realize it's a subtle denial of the more classic song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yeah. Uh, so we want to, we're really, this isn't about knowing God's love through Jesus. This is about saying, I don't trust the Bible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I don't have to take it as God's word. Well, I think it's also just this tendency in the progressive Christian church to say, Jesus is the word. And in their mind, somehow that means the Bible isn't, or mm -hmm. that the that we can sort of dis, discredit or disregard the Bible because we have Jesus. But the problem is, I'm reading this, Jesus loves you this I know, for he came to show us. So, well, how do you even know that without the Bible? That's right. That's right. There's 
the Bible's the thing that gives you the theology of Jesus loves me, this I know because he came to show me. Yeah. So this is, I only know it from the Bible. The revelation of Jesus is inseparably connected to the inspiration of scripture. Yeah. Inseparably. But the goal here is to separate it. The real thing is that's going on here is there's a host of things they believe and want to teach that disagree <clears throat> with the clear teachings of scripture. What they want to do is have a stripped down version of Jesus that has the authority of Jesus, but not the nature, identity, and beliefs of Jesus. So they can have in the name of Jesus, like this sort of reworked, reformatted Christ Christianity that goes against the teaching of the Bible. It's a new Jesus, it's a new Christianity um, with actual rules requiring you to reject the inspiration of scripture. I mean, they'll, I remember when uh, Rob uh, Bell was asked, is the Bible the word of God? He laughed. Wow. I don't think Jesus would have responded that way. Yeah, no. Right. I, I think that if you take Christ, you're going to hear him saying that the scripture is unbroken. Yeah. That all the scripture must be fulfilled. He refers to what what uh, David writes and calls it uh, the written by the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to trust Jesus. And if you go, well, I, well, how do I know that's really accurate about Christ? Well, fine, don't call yourself a Christian. Right? Yeah. The things that you think you know about Jesus are either from the scripture or they're like um, cut and edited from the scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In which case you have a, a, a personalized version of Christ that, that doesn't fit historical or biblical Christianity. Yeah. And I gave a little bit of a spoiler a minute ago because number 15 is Jesus is the true word of God, not the Bible. And uh, talk about that a bit because I'm seeing a false dichotomy there for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a false, that's it. That's the whole key. This is a false dichotomy. The Bible's the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. They're in different senses. There's, there's a sense in which there's an overlap, right? The Bible reveals, is a revelation from God. It's, it's, when we say it's the word of God, this is biblical language for it. it's, it's inspired, you know, the source of the information ultimately is God. And so it carries his authority. And then Jesus is the word of God because he's also a revelation of God. And in a greater sense, I, I also agree. Jesus is a revelation of God in a greater sense, even than the Bible itself is, except there's overlap. Right, because the the things I know about Jesus revealing the Father are contained in the Word of God, which is why the works, words, um, and and the ministry of Jesus Christ is recorded in our Word of God in the Bible. There's an overlap, but both are revealed truth. Jesus is the greatest revelation of God, but there's no conflict between Christ and the Bible. Yeah. This is an artificial conflict. God's never going to contradict Himself. Um, the weird thing about this is, it comes down to saying like. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift up Christ, I'm going to respect Christ, I'm going to love Christ, I'm going to honor Christ, but I'm going to disregard his teachings about Scripture. I'm going to disregard various things that he, right. he affirmed and, and he confirmed, but I'm going to do it in his name. This is, this is a false Christ. Yeah. And speaking of artificial conflicts, <laughs> let's go on to number 16. Uh, this is a big one. This is one that I encountered a whole lot uh, when I tell my story about being in the class at the church that would go on to become progressive. This was a theme that was pretty consistent, and this is number 16. And according to this progressive Christian platform, Christians should worship the true Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, Holy Bible. So what do you think about that one? Um, I 100% agree. Right. I mean... <laughs> Which is why I don't worship the Bible. That's why we don't worship the Bible. Right. 
Yeah. I, I study the scripture. I learn from the scripture. I, the love and honor I have for God is of course, in part transferred onto the things he says. Yes. Of course it is. Right. G let me quote from Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll keep him. You, if you love Jesus, you will care about what he says. This is not rocket science. If you worship God, you're going to honor what he says. If you're, if you said to your, to your mom, I, I love you, mom, but not what you say. And, and it's only because I love you so much that I'm going to now devalue the things you say yeah. just because I want to preserve my love for you. Yeah. I, I don't, I just want to ask someone who says this, what do you mean? Don't worship the Bible. Can you give me some examples of what is Bible worship to you that you want us to put aside? Yeah, that's good. And if they're really honest, they're going to tell you, you know, taking it like it's really God's word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I've often heard, too, the phrase, and I'm sure you've heard this, the phrase, bibliolatry. Like, uh, in some way, we've made the Bible into some kind of an idol that we're worshiping in place of of the Holy Spirit or, or one of the members of the Trinity or that we've made the Bible the fourth member of the Trinity or something along those lines. And I was always, always so confused by this claim when it would come about because that was my first thought. Well, I don't worship the Bible, uh, but that's where I get information, primary and, and authoritative information about God. And honestly, if this claim is true, of of us, then it's true of Jesus too, because we have Jesus, like you mentioned, saying the scriptures cannot be broken. We have Jesus calling the Old Testament scriptures the word of God dozens of times. This is the weapon he actually used to fight the temptation in the wilderness when the enemy was coming to him to try to get him to sin. His weapon against that was to quote scripture and to say, it is written. And John Wenham, a great Bible scholar who wrote a book about uh, Christ in the Bible and what Jesus' view of the Bible was, uh, even said, when Jesus says it is written, it's the equivalent of, of him saying, this is God's word. This is inspired by God. And he was using that in a very active way. And so I was always so confused by that charge because, I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my Bible singing worship songs to my Bible or, you know, singing the praises of my Bible. I'm getting, I'm, I'm mining the truth out of there, like you said, because it is God's word to us and we should take it extremely seriously. But uh, again, I just, yeah. th I think it's this false dichotomy and, and, and a mm -hmm. bit of a straw. I know we use say that word straw man so much, but it really is because I don't know any Christians that would A, agree that they're worshiping the Bible and B, doing anything that would lead me to think that they actually are doing that. Yeah. And, and think of how the conversation takes place, right? Um, so your pastor says something like, um, uh, you know, Muslims worship and love God. They, you know, they don't need, you know, they're going to go to heaven basically. And then you, and you go to him and you say, but pastor, it says here that no one can come except through Jesus and that the death and resurrection of Christ are essential and Muslims deny the death and the resurrection. And then the pastor looks at you and says, you know, is it father, son, and holy Bible? The context of those conversations is always, I have teaching that disagrees with scripture. Yeah. And I'll accuse you, if you decide to use scripture to refute me, I'll accuse you of idolizing the Bible. And uh, no, I just think that God's words are more reliable than your words. Mm. And I'll use them to test your words. That's it. Very There's good. nothing else going on there. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Number 17. 
Uh, God is not holding a gun to anyone's head saying, if you don't believe in Jesus, he's going to damn you to a literal hell for all eternity. That would not make God loving. And that would mean Jesus was lying when he told us to forgive 70 times 7 and to forgive our enemies. So there's two kind of two claims in there. Um, he's saying for God to basically say he's going to damn you to a literal hell would make him not loving. And then we can deal with the part about it apparently making Jesus into a liar. So what, what would you say to that first part? <clears throat> um, yeah, God's not holding a gun to anyone's head saying, if you don't believe in Jesus, he's going to damn you to a literal hell for all eternity. Well, the problem here is, is just the caricature, right? So the, this isn't about theology. This is about caricature. This isn't about what, what are the conditions through which we would be condemned or be saved. That's not the question here. It's, it's God's holding a gun, which makes him a bad guy. Yeah. So in other words, God is not a bad villain who is threatening you. And <clears throat> to that, I agree. Okay. That is, that is, <clears throat> pardon me, that is definitely a caricature and a, a, a wrong understanding of what like a biblical teaching of this would be. But I think the scriptural understanding is this, is that it's your sin that brings you into God's judgment and God's less like a guy with a gun and more like a judge with a gavel. Mm. And he's telling you, um, I'm going to judge you for your sin, but I'm making another way and the choice is yours. Mm. That, that would be probably a better caricature or a better representation of what's going on there. Yeah. And then, and then I think a lot of people are confused about this second part because I hear this claim a lot too, that, you know, if Jesus tells us to forgive our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and to forgive 70 times seven, um, doesn't it make him a liar if, you know, if hell exists and he's going to send people to hell? So, so how can we make sense of that claim? Because I, I think that even might be something that could confuse Christians about, uh, about the nature of forgiveness and how that all works. Yeah. Well, one thing I'll, I'll just acknowledge is, is that God in the gospel, the, the heart of the gospel message is God forgiving his enemies. Right. Okay. So that is the heart of the gospel message is that we're all apart from God. We're lot, this is something progressive Christians would probably deny is the, the, the sin nature of mankind, mm -hmm. our wickedness, our guilt before God. So every Christian, everyone who gets saved, is an enemy who was forgiven. And so that is preserved. That is absolutely the heart of the message. But there's <clears throat> a question here is like, is God asking me to forgive more than he forgives? Because like if someone sins against me, I'm just supposed to forgive. Yet he has a conditional if you come to Christ. And I would say a couple things here. For one, there's a difference between forgiveness offered and forgiveness received. I am to offer forgiveness to everybody, but it doesn't mean I actually am restored in relationship with them. So let's say I was molested as a child, which thank God I wasn't, but let's say that that happened to me. My Christian duty is to offer forgiveness to that molester, not to offer, offer restoration of relationship. That depends on their repentance mm. and their transformation. And if they haven't repented and changed, it's only a halfway forgiveness. My heart forgives, but they are not restored. That's the cross. God's full offer of forgiveness to the world, but the restoration doesn't take place until repentance. And so I think that that's the same case for our relationships. Um, we, we have an offer of forgiveness, but for the large relationship breaking issues, there does need to be repentance for there to be restoration. There's another sense though, in which God's, um, God's the rightful judge of the earth and I'm not. And so I'm called to forgive people who he is going to judge anyways. And that's because of our role relationship. It's like your kids, they're fighting. And if they try to take wrath out on each other, you're like, stop, that's not your job. That's my job. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, know? right. You, know, you can't punish one another. You need to forgive them and you come tell me and I will discipline them. That's very good. And, yeah. 
And that's part of our forgiveness. This is what we get in Romans 12. It says, uh, 12, 19, Romans says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for its written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So part of my forgiveness is in acknowledging his role as sovereign judge. Mm -hmm. But let me mention the 70 times 77 thing, because it's really interesting. There's a good chance that when Jesus says forgive 70 times 7, he's actually referring to an Old Testament passage or event where Israel goes into um, uh, punishment because for 490 years they have not let the land rest, which happens to be 70 times 7. So mm. they violated the law of God to give it the land a Sabbath every seven years. And this 70 times 7 thing may be a hearkening to God's incredible patience, how patient he was, wow. hundreds of years of waiting, abiding with them, offering them grace. And then what did he do? He judged them. And they did actually get delivered into the hands of their enemies and the land was destroyed. So even in Jesus's own uh, quote here, it doesn't probably mean what people sometimes think. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, number 18, God is not going to, there's a lot about hell in these, isn't there? God, yeah. God is not going to send you to hell because you got his name wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. And I will, <clears throat> almost as a side note, just because you mentioned there's a lot about hell. Hell's like a, like a, a spot where there's, there's like a watershed moment. You're going to go one way or the other. Yeah. You will eventually either affirm mankind really is deserving of judgment mm -hmm. and God is righteous, or you will have to get rid of hell somehow. Yeah. And, and I also want to ask people to look into the world and, and tell them, yeah, we're yeah. all sinners who really are, you know, deserving of God's judgment. I also want to ask people what they think hell is when, when I hear a lot of these claims, because I, I, I get the feeling they might be operating on some misconceptions about hell, but, uh, but what, how would you, yeah. and it seems to under this one, God is not going to send you to hell because you got his name wrong. Obviously the point they're trying to make is if you call yeah. him Buddha or you call, well, I know Buddhists don't actually worship Buddha, but you know, if you call him yeah. Vishnu or you call him something else, he's not going to, he's not going to send you to hell because you got his name wrong. And in an interesting situation, I actually put this in my book, uh, a situation in the class that I was in where one of the guys that ended up going progressive or more in that direction did so because he had visited a Buddhist temple and he observed the monks in their reverence and in their um, just, it, it felt so good to him. And, and he saw them with such honor and nobility, bowing and, and you know, worshiping whatever they were worshiping. And he said, I just can't believe in a God that wouldn't accept that worship. I believe God accepts mm -hmm. that worship. And so I think there's, there's the, that's what's underneath this question is God's not going to send you to hell because you didn't get his name right. So, so how would you respond to that? Well, I mean, okay, so again, I can agree with the words, but probably not what they mean by them. Like, thank God, you know, it doesn't matter if you say Jesus or Yeshua or Yehoshua or Jesus or Yesu, don't care. The name's not what's important. The identity is what's important. And the golden calf incident is actually a really good example of this because when Aaron makes the golden calf and Moses is up, you know, talking to God and the people are there and he makes an idol. If you look at it in the Hebrew, what he declares to the people is this is Yahweh mm. who led you out of Egypt. He takes the name of God and puts it on an idol. And to prove that name alone mm. isn't as isn't the thing that does it, God still punishes the people for that. In other words, it's the identity that matters, not the name. So it's you can call, let's say you say God or you say Elohim or you say Jehovah or Yahweh. <clears throat> That's not super relevant as far as ex, ex, you know the, the syllable expressions. But if you say identity doesn't matter, mm. 
now there's a problem because if you say Krishna or say Buddhist, let me give an illustration. Let's say that you see a video of me and I'm with the girl and I got my arm around her and my wife's name is Allison, right? So she's Allison and I'm just, I'm hugging her and you can just see the love and the sincerity in my heart. I have so much compassion for this woman and you think, well, that's so beautiful. Later you find out that even though she was named Allison, that wasn't my wife. That was some other woman. It doesn't matter how loving my compassion is. It was, it was yeah. evil. It was out of, it was to the wrong person. And so love and devotion given to a false God is like adultery, which is what God relates it to in the Old Testament. He goes, this is adulterous. What you're doing with these false gods is adultery. That belongs to me. You, if your friend thought or this person thought, um, God will accept the worship that comes from those, most, those uh, Buddhists, but the worship from the Buddhists isn't offered to God. Yeah. It's not worship of God. Yeah. So this is this is adultery. Adultery, people don't realize that adultery can involve very much compassion and love and all kinds of like positive relationship qualities. It's the identity of the person being wrong that makes it adultery. And that's the same case for false religions. Yeah. yeah. Number 19 says, why would a God who says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, later decide to kill his own son as a sacrifice? He wouldn't. God didn't demand a sacrifice. We did. This is this is a big one in the progressive Christian church. I I, I hear this in different iterations, all over the place uh, in books and blogs and podcasts. This is a very core tenet, I think, of of the progressive church. How would you respond? Well, okay. At the risk of sounding rude, and I I wouldn't do this in public. In public, everything's rude. <laughs> but in private, I would I would want to ask the person, do you do you care about the context of Hosea six six? Do you care what Hosea meant when he wrote these words? And I just want them to say yes, because they have to. How can they not care? Yeah. And, then, and then say, let's look at it. And if you read Hosea, and I mean, I wouldn't mind just reading the whole book with them if, if they'll wait. But if they'll just read Hosea, then they'll see <clears throat> the people of Israel were living in rebellion to God, yet they were still offering sacrifices, but great rebellion, apostasy, false beliefs, and false practices. And so God says, I'm going to cut off your sacrifices. I'm sick of it. Yes. And when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, what he means is, I want you to follow me. Don't just offer these sacrifices and think everything's fine. Right. And so he cuts off their sacrifices. Then later in Hosea, God predicts that there's a time coming when he'll restore sacrifices to Israel and they will be pleasing to him. So even in Hosea, God just doesn't want uh, empty religious behaviors. He wants hearts that are after him. Yeah. But guess what? That still includes sacrifice. Yeah. Um, the... The basic idea here, Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 8 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That's Hosea 6, 6. It's a sacrifice of the wicked here. In Mark 1, Jesus kind of weighs in on this a bit because he heals a leper and then he tells the leper to go and offer the sacrifices commanded in the law. So Jesus commands a leper to offer two birds is what we're required in the temple because he's not as opposed to sacrifice as the progressives have been told. Yeah. In Mark 14, 24, Jesus uses this amazing phrase, this, his, his blood, he's holding up the cup. This is the communion passage. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Blood of a covenant is entirely sacrificial terminology, right? That you would, you, you would sacrifice an animal as a way of, they called it cutting a covenant. So you, you, we have a covenant with this offering of the animal, and then we partake together because we're both partaking of this covenant. He's saying, I am, I am that sacrifice. In Hebrews 10, 12, listen to this. It says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice 
for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is not seen as anti-sacrifice. He is seen as the ultimate sacrifice. So there's there's a danger here in only thinking in verses, but not mm-hmm. thinking in books and in context. And that's something they're falling into. Mm-hmm. Um, God did demand sacrifice and he provided it through himself. And the best they can do is to try to make that look as ugly as possible. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it reminds me so much of the Old Testament concept of the solemn assembly. All throughout the Old Testament, you have God commanding Israel to do a, a solemn assemb- assembly or sacred assembly where they would have a feast and a festival, and it was a time of, uh, I believe it was a time of uh, like uh, observing holiness and and they wouldn't work, and it was this thing that God commanded them to do. But in Amos, he says, I hate your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And it's kind of the same thing. It's like God's not saying you never had to be doing those. He's saying your heart is not with me. This is hypocrisy. And and so, I, but but you're right. This is what happens when you just pluck a verse and then give it, offer it to people who probably aren't reading the whole Bible in context. It can be very persuasive. Well, God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So they must have misunderstood all the times that apparently God told them to do the sacrifices. We have to read the whole context to know God's heart uh, regarding some of these things. Uh, okay, this next one is, this. these next two are tough, okay? But I know you're up to the task. Um, All right. Now, I might get in trouble when I answer I know. These. Well, I know that you've recently done a, a pretty extensive series on one of these, but we'll get to that one in a second. But um, honestly, I, I, <laughs> I've been curious about this one myself. Number 20, yeah. it, he, he says it's not a sin to smoke. Um, here's one where I think that the typical conservative Christian church has overreacted. Um, and then my problem is that the, <clears throat> the response to this is then an underreaction. <laughs> and so I think the truth is more in the middle. Um, smoking is a broad term. So what if I said this, is it a sin to smoke one cigarette a week? Well, I mean, you're not getting high off of it. You're not, you're not losing your sobriety. It's Mm -hmm. not going to cause you any severe harm. It's not really a big risk actually, to be honest. Okay. But what about a pack a day? Okay. Yeah. You're probably going to die now. That's probably a bad thing. (laughs) You shouldn't do that. It's harmful. It brings you under its power. So if it's a, it's in a, if, if smoking is an addictive behavior, if smoking is, is going to cause you physical harm as a pack a day habit would. But what about a guy that has uh, smokes a pipe where he doesn't inhale every night, uh, you know, before he goes to bed or maybe once a week? Okay, here you realize it's not just a black and white issue. Yeah. There's an issue. There's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Now, I think that the uh, the black and whiteness of well, let me give you an example. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say that he felt so uncomfortable with smoking that if he was walking through the church parking lot, he saw a cigarette on the ground, he'd feel bad for picking it up to throw it away. Wow. Our convictions can drive a lot of our yeah. feelings on these things. Yeah. If you're convicted about smoking, you shouldn't ever do it in any way, shape, or form. If you feel like it's entirely okay, then you absolutely have to recognize that it, you can't let it bring you under its power and do not do it to an extent that might be harmful to your body. Yeah. Um, or, or others, or you're going to stumble others with your behavior because the use of liberty can stumble others. Yeah. So I, I think that would probably be a more balanced approach. Yeah. Most people who are sm- regular smokers are probably doing it in a sinful fashion in reality. Yeah. And I th- that doesn't mean everybody. It could is, be uh, also, it just occurs to me too, it could be a sanctification issue, part of your sanctification process, because I've done a quite a bit of inner city work and uh, in urban areas where, you know, you would do evangelism and somebody would get saved 
who had a horrible drug problem and mm-hmm. got, you know, they're, and they're, they're clean for the first time in their life, mm-hmm. but they're smoking cigarettes on the church steps. And, you know, it's like they just haven't been convicted yeah. of that yet because there's this much bigger mm-hmm. thing that God's convicted them about and they're, they're working on and working on their sobriety yeah. there. So I think there can be um, a bit of gray area in that too, as God, you know, it, I love how Charles Ryrie described sanctification. God gives you light, you respond to that light, and then he gives you more light. And so it could, you know, fall in, in that somewhere too. But I think that was a, yeah. that was a good answer. And I'd never excommunicate somebody because right, they smoke. Right, right. Yeah. And I, and all sin is not the same. Yeah. The guy who's right. cheating on his wife, get out yeah. of here. You know? I'd rather you smoke. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'd rather you be smoking. Yeah. So they're not all the same, but if we're, if we're really talking about full, full lives devoted to Christ, yeah. um, uh, addiction and harm are, are things yeah. that you don't want in your life. That's good. Okay, which leads us to number 21. This is the one you recently did a kind of a deep dive study on and put your findings out on a video video series on YouTube. And so 21 is, it's not a sin to drink. So um, ironically, I actually did this video a, a while back, but suddenly recently YouTube was like, we're going to promote that video. And it just suddenly got oh, tons of views wow. out of nowhere. But, um, but yeah, drinking, uh, this was hard for me to do. Okay. Um, there is alcoholism in my family and growing up, I basically, I don't drink even today. Okay. I don't drink. I have a conviction about, I just, uh, I just can't do it. (laughs) But when I did a real study of scripture to ask this question, I not only saw that it was permissible to drink, but I saw that drinking and I'm being as honest as I can here, that drinking is a positive thing which God has given mankind to enjoy. And that was, is not in line with what I was, what I always hear pastors teach in my, in my circles. And yet it is what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that it's a positive thing to enjoy, but it also then goes on. That's not the whole, some people want to stop. Like that's the whole story. It then goes on to warn extreme warnings against the dangers of alcohol. And it's overuse of alcohol, either in drunkenness or in regular habitual drunkenness, that this is a horrible thing. It's destructive to lives. It's destructive to families. So it's not a sin to drink if you do so in true moderation, right, where, where you're, not, you're not getting drunk mm-hmm. ever. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, the people that are the abstinence people need to move over to thinking, okay, drinking can be acceptable and can be done into the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And then the people that are already there, they need to be aware <laughs> that they're not making excuses yeah. for drunkenness or for irreverent behaviors. And, um, and so, yeah, I have a whole big, long teaching on the topic. Uh, but no, I would, I would agree. It's not a sin to drink in and of itself. We'll link to that in the podcast notes. Uh, okay, so number two, uh, 22. Uh, I, actually, interesting, I was just pondering this question recently. Uh, if sin means miss the mark, and what he's referring to is the Greek word uh, hamartia, which is one of the words that the Bible uses in Greek to describe sin, which does mean miss the mark. So if sin means miss the mark, then we all sin in every way by just being alive, for we all fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. It's funny how a little phrase can involve so many things I'd want to disagree with. <laughs> um, um, I don't think we sin by just being alive. Like merely existing isn't a sin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that I don't know what that means, except that it's to devalue the topic. Yeah. Uh, the point ultimately is that sin's not that big of a deal. I think that's his ultimate point. Yeah. Sin's not really that big of a deal. Which then you gotta wonder why does he care that it's not a sin to smoke or not a sin to drink if sin's just not even a big yeah. deal? Yeah. Yeah. But um 
whatever the um the reality is they're not really about something it's not that they're trying to construct a cohesive view of christianity mm -hmm. in my view the progressive christians are just trying to tear something down yeah they're not trying to build right, something yeah. up they just want to tear something down i'm going to attack you on it's not a sin to smoke it's not a sin to drink and guess what sin ain't no big deal anyway mm -hmm. okay well then what these these are conflicting ideas actually yeah but there's a difference between the etymology of a word and the definition of a word, right? So the etymology or the origin of the word hamartia, right? It, it is missing the mark. It was like an archery term. But etymology, the more you study Greek or any language, the more you realize etymology is like actually not very important. Mm. And first year Greek students or Christians who have a little bit of Greek, they tend to be flipping through strongs and yeah, going yeah. to the root word of the root word of the root word. And I just want to say, this is like a really bad idea. Like we should just read usage not roots, mm -hmm. usage, not roots. So the usage of the word hamartia, it has meanings according to BDAG, which is a, a standard lexicon, meanings ranging from involuntary mistakes or errors to serious offenses against a deity. In scripture in particular, hamartia or sin is pretty much always used as a very serious thing. It's not a, oh, you missed the mark. It really is used as a serious thing where there's a consequence of God's judgment um, upon the sinner. So when they say we all fall short of the glory of God in this in this thing, they act like that means, hey, we all do it. It's kind of like if, if if I if I caught you shoplifting and you were like, come on, Mike, everybody's done it. You're, you're what you mean is so it's not really that big of a deal. Right. Um, except when you have a perfectly holy and just God, if everyone's done it, it just means everyone's in trouble. Because God's not going to judge us based upon what everyone does, but based upon holiness. Yeah. So in scripture, when it says all fall short of the glory of God, it's not not a big deal. It's in Romans where Romans 1, 2, and 3 are laying out that this is why God's wrath is going to come down upon us. So this is uh, quoting scripture to mean the exact opposite of what it means. Mm. And I think too, I, I think behind this sentiment might be the idea that if, if, if that's all it means, just missing the mark, then I mean, just looking the wrong way, you're missing the mark, or taking a step in the wrong direction is missing the mark. So, Or you, you went bowling and you got a gutter yeah, ball. Yeah, yeah, we missed the mark. So We don't mean that, yeah. though, do we? Yeah, so <laughs> I think that's, that's a good distinction there. Uh, okay, so number 23 here, um, this is another big one in the progressive movement. It says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father without coming through me. And then the commentary is, this is not an exclusive statement. This is an inclusive statement. This was never intended to be a threat. This was an exposure of reality. Jesus was saying, I'm part of the deal, whether you like it or not. He wasn't saying, pick me before you die, or my daddy will torture you for all eternity. That would make God worse than Hitler. The big, their big finish there. <laughs> their big finish. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> okay, they say it's, let's just take it kind of one piece at a time. The first part is they're saying that Jesus' statement in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that that's not exclusive. Um, yes, it is. Read it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the way it could be inclusive is if in the Gospel of John, in the full context of Scripture, if there was teaching that everyone would come to Christ. But one of the stark realities in the Gospel of John is how many people reject him. In fact, John 1, it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
And he says that if they don't believe in him, they will, quote, die in their sins. This is Jesus saying this. So the context is, yes, there are those who receive and those who reject Christ. And no one, can, and because no one can come to the Father except through Christ, they will not be coming to the Father. So it is an exclusive statement in the context of John, in the teaching of the Scripture. Um, their interpretation is instead, Jesus is part of the deal, whether you like it or not. Well, I would, I would agree with that as well. Mm. He's part of it, but but if you don't like it, you don't get the deal. Yeah. That's that's the the final uh, and offensive part of the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's pretty offensive to tell people that without Jesus they won't be saved. Yeah, and this it's the exclusivity of Christ is offensive to people. The question we should ask before we ask about that is if it's true or not. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to do anything in the name of Christianity, that starts with believing that Jesus is true. And so we need to be affirming his exclusivity if you're going to call that Christianity. Um, then the end of the statement though, they said, um, Jesus wasn't saying, pick me before you die or my daddy will torture you for all eternity. Mm -hmm. You can just smell the stink of (laughs) irritation and hatred for conservative Christian values and views. Mm -hmm. Just, just oozing off of this kind of statement, pick me before you die or my daddy will torture you for all eternity. Yeah. He's got to know that that's a caricature. You know, I reject the idea of torture. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, sorry. I was just going to say, he has to know that's not really what we think. You know, it, it really is just a caricature. You would you would think so. Yeah. But it's weird how, and we see this in atheists too, when people go from a conservative Christian environment to like a progressive, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about politics. I mean, it overlaps our politics a little bit, sure. but we're talking about theological values. Uh, when we go from that environment to progressive Christian or from that environment to atheist, it's so weird to hear how these people now talk about what they used to believe. And you're like, you know, right. that wasn't really you. Right. And, like, and if they did, around you, that, that wasn't the right, they didn't have the right Christianity if that's what they believed, you know? Yeah. I, I just, there are bad examples of Christians and shallow thinking and whatnot. But, but obviously, that's not what you should be trying to refute if you want to refute core Christian values. Yeah. So the, the concept of torture hell being torture for all eternity. Uh, so torture has a value to it. It's not just a behavior or an action like causing someone suffering. That's not always considered torture. Uh, you right. know, I, I, there's times where I would call, cause someone suffering. You know, I go to the dentist, they're causing me suffering. I don't call it torture because that puts a moral value on what the dentist is doing. What right. I'm saying is the, the dentist immorally is causing me pain just for the purpose of causing me pain. And that's it. And so it, the use of the word torture for hell is, is a, uh, is a it, it front loads a moral judgment that God is unjust in, in even having hell yeah. as a consequence for sin. And I think that, that is, uh, that's where the discussion needs to lie. We, we need to talk about how torture is an inappropriate thing. If that's torture, then parking tickets are torture. Yeah. Right? You shouldn't have parked there. You got a parking ticket. That's torture because they're causing you suffering. If, if that's torture, then grounding your kid you know, you're grounded. You can't go anywhere this weekend. That is torture. Yeah. Every judgment, every punishment is now torture if that is. Mm. And that's the real issue there. The, the, to me, the bottom line is at some point, every Christian has to look at it. Every person's going to have to look at it and decide, do I think hell is bad or do I think sin is bad? Mm. You're going to, you're going to fall in line and, and a whole bunch of other dominoes will start falling after you make that decision. I think that sin is bad and I don't, I think it's irrational to think that we live in a universe with an unjust God who is the grounding of justice. It, that's irrational. Yeah. 
So it's it's the caricature I think is impossible, not the reality of what Christianity teaches. And I think too this this entire point here, this number twenty three, is encapsulating a view that's so popular in the progressive Christian church, and that's a form of universalism called universal reconciliation. This is affirmed by William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack. This is uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber's view. And that's that, uh, yeah, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But they're saying this is inclusive in that everybody in the world is included in that. And so whatever salvation yeah. needs to take place or whatever. But that only works if you completely isolate that verse from all other biblical context. It, just for example, just John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It goes on in verse 18 uh, that says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of uh, God's one and only son. So if you just, again, take that one verse and kind of twist it around to kind of, oh, I can see why they could say that, but you can't say that if you if you situate it within the larger biblical context, which is so often what um, I see f progressive Christians fail to do. Not all. There are, for sure, some thought more thoughtful progressive Christians that are trying to do more of a, a systematic theological approach. I, I think they fail in their conclusions, as we see with like the Reformation Project and their biblical points. But I think that's what we're seeing there with that, is that's that's really their view of, of that verse, is that that's actually affirming universal reconciliation, which is a form of universalism. Yeah, it's it's a two-step thing, right? In the first, and they do this again, this same two-step thing over and over. In the first step, we reinterpret one verse out of context to affirm our universalist view. Yes. In the second step, we absolutely demonize anyone who disagrees. Yeah. Right. So not only is this true, but this is the righteous view, and it should absolutely trigger you. That's right. If anybody disagrees. Yeah. Because there is no such thing as a just judge who justly sends sinners to hell. There is only a daddy who tortures people forever. Right. Yeah, that's an important point you just brought up. I think I think that's that's a a good thing for us to be on the lookout for that two step sort of bait and switch there with uh, biblical interpretation. So this uh, entire Facebook post ends with a little bit of commentary. I'm just going to read a little bit as we close out here today, and I'll let you have some closing thoughts here, Mike, as we read through this. So the the writer says this. This is my partial list. I'm sure it looks very different from your list, and that's okay. Instead of debating, arguing, and shaming each other, let's just love each other. Uh, again, assuming that love means there's not going to be any debate or, or something like that. He says, yeah. no one is going to arrive on heaven's doorstep and say, I got it all figured out way more than everyone. So why treat each other like horse poop? <laughs> because we disagree with each other. There are many streams of Christianity. If they are shaming you in your stream, find a different one. They don't get to decide if you are in or out. And then he goes on to explain the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this. You're all in. And you have free will to accept God's love and invitation to the banquet of a Trinitarian love affair or decline. But even if you do decline, I think the picture we get of God in the prodigal son story is this. The father sees you while you uh, still were far way off. He is filled with compassion and running for you. So you reject God on this side or the other. You won't be punished. You'll be, you'll be punishing yourself, much like the elder brother in the prodigal son's story by huffing and puffing because you obeyed your list and all these sinners have been led into the party 
because of absurd and unfair grace, this will be your own hell because you refuse to be in and around forgiven sinners that didn't obey your lists or interpret the scriptures how you do or vote your political party, but fret not no matter how long you say no to God and are in a state of being a far way off. God is in a constant flow of outpouring compassion and the Trinity that we call God will never, ever, ever, ever stop chasing you with his love. So that's a, there's a lot in there. There's, I mean, and, and I think that the whole pinnacle of that is his description of the gospel. His, his gospel presentation is you're all in and you can choose it or not choose yeah. it, but it doesn't matter. You're not going to be punished. But it's still true. Yeah. The utter lack of self-awareness yeah. is astounding. Christianity yeah. has lots of flavors. Pick whichever one you want, right? In other words, beliefs. Any beliefs you want, call it Christianity and go for it and don't let anyone shame you. Mm -hmm. And now what I want you to know is my flavor is absolutely true. That's right. And anyone who disagrees is going to hell and it will be the hell of experiencing the knowledge that I was right all along and they were wrong all along. Yeah. And all the universalism that I was teaching was, was the true flavor of Christianity. Yeah. Everything about that is self-contradictory yeah. and utterly hypocritical. Yeah. And unbiblical. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, so. it, it's you make such a good point because he's basically saying, it's okay, we can disagree, we don't have to uh, have all this, but don't shame each other. And then he goes on and basically shames you if you don't agree with his very specific uh, beliefs about the gospel and about who Jesus is, who God the Father is, how they save people, how it works in the world. It's all worked out. It's all, it's all very, very... Um, objectively declared as an objective truth. Um, and you're going to find out when you die. Yeah. Does that not sound like the fundamentalist yeah. he hates? Yeah, it does. When you yes. die, you'll see I was right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what, what words the, of encouragement the, the, would you leave everybody with, our people who are watching and listening to this, as, as we've tried to parse through all of these ideas, and then we've kind of read through this guy's basic idea of the gospel, what would your encouragement be to people who are listening and watching as they try to pursue truth in their relationship with God and in their Christianity? Uh, one of the things I would encourage you with is don't be intimidated. Yes. The value of their intimidation through their righteous posturing is, is that is the whole deal. Mm. The entire flavor that I see behind this, in my opinion, this 23 item list is I'm, I'm in the righteous position and those who have these values, they're in the unrighteous position. I'm judging them. They're wicked. And, if, and if, at the end, he affirms they will experience my version of hell when they die. And don't be intimidated by that, that, that push of we're righteous and your views are unrighteous. That's, I think the number one hammer that the progressive Christians have yeah. that they keep hammering on your view of the gospel, your view of Jesus, your view of the Bible, your view of hell. It's all ungodly. It's all unrighteous. It's all wicked. Mm -hmm. And then our view is righteous, but there's no self-awareness. They don't realize that they're doing all the same condemning. They're just doing it for unbiblical reasons. Mm. And so don't be intimidated. Second is this, you may not be able to know how to work through a list like this and how to spot errors, but you do know what scripture teaches. Yeah. And it's always been the word of God that has been our anchor to keep us in God's truth. It is the word of God that allowed the people to know false prophet from true. It is the word of God that allowed the people to know that Jesus was the Messiah when the Bereans were studying the scriptures. It is God's word that makes us able and capable of, of being fully grown Christians who are of use to God. And for you, it's going to be saying, you know, I'm just going to trust God more than you. Mm. And your shaming and your demonization of things that I'm pretty sure scripture teaches 
isn't going to intimidate me. This is this is going to just keep happening. We'll see more and more progressive stuff. The, the thing about progressives is they're they're more enjoyed by culture, mm. right? Because of of their teachings, yeah. and so they're going to uh, be more acceptable in those cultural environments and stuff like that. But this is again, this is just an issue of take up your cross. Part of that is the gospel has offensive, counterintuitive teachings that the world doesn't like. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's a good word, Mike. Okay, where can people find you online and connect with you and watch your videos and your teachings? Um, well, I mean, probably the best way is just look look me up on YouTube. Just type Mike Winger on YouTube and you should find it. Um, there's also BibleThinker.org or if you do podcasts, I'm probably on whatever podcast platform under uh, Bible Thinker or my name. Yeah, and everything I produce is free. So it's all there. Just use it and enjoy. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for being with us for this long period of time to parse through this kind of difficult uh, list of things. But I think we, hopefully I pray that this will help some people just as they think through the things that come across their news feeds on a daily basis. So thanks so much for being with us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for watching or listening today. If you found this content helpful, please go on over to iTunes and leave a great review, or you can subscribe and click the bell icon on YouTube to know whenever we release a new video. If you want to find out how you can come alongside the ministry in a more meaningful way, check out patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.